Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Continue our study of Luke. This is our 91st week in Luke. We're getting there. We're getting there. And this morning is a very familiar passage, a very rich passage. I'd like to begin our time by reading Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, what is commonly known as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The, uh, if you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of the notes in the bulletin, and I'm reading from the ESV. <clears throat> He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted Two men, two prayers, two destinies. It's a short, profound lesson from our Lord, and there's much here for us to learn from. We'll look at this as we did the last parable in three parts, the introduction, the explanation, the application. Um, this, This parable is very similar to the last one in its structure in that Luke, the narrator, gives an introduction. If you look at 18.1, The parable of the persistent widow, we are told, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Somewhat unusual. And here again, he also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So here are two parables on prayer. The first, about not growing weary and and persistence in prayer. This, more about the heart and how one approaches God in prayer. So let's consider first the audience. Who is Jesus speaking to? Now you'll notice verse 9 picks up, he also told this parable, which means Luke is connecting this with what came before. There's no reason to think we have a different audience group. And so if you look all the way back to 7.22, this is picking up from he said to the disciples. And this section of Luke where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, begun in chapter 9, he's now alternating teaching the disciples and hearing the Pharisees and the Pharisees in the hearing of the disciples. And yet, this introduction stands a little unique. Normally, he said to the disciples, he said to the Pharisees, here he said to some. And I get the impression here, and your blank is that he's speaking to both the disciples and the Pharisees. There are some among his disciples who need to hear this, and there are some among the Pharisees who need to hear this. That Here's a message for both groups. Here's a message for us. With what purpose? I think this purpose is to warn those who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's, that's the audience. So as we're listening to this, as we're studying this, we need to examine ourselves. Is, is it possible 
that I'm trusting myself that I'm righteous? Is it possible that I'm treating others with contempt? This, this is a parable for us, a warning for us. There's a lot of encouragement here, but there's definitely warning. And part of the problem is we, we, we br- bring to bear all the negativity that we think of Pharisee and Pharisaism. But in the, in the first instance, in the, in the first century, these guys would have been local heroes, closer to anything. These are the good guys. Remember, Israel had gone into captivity to Babylon because they did not obey the law. They did not keep the covenant. And so God, as he promised in Deuteronomy, disciplined them. And when they returned from the land, the sect of the Pharisees arose as, as part of getting Israel back to the Bible, back to the Old Testament. These are the religious conservatives, the literalists, the Sadducees. They're the ones who didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in the books past the books of Moses. It was the Pharisees who were the literalists. They meditated and, and memorized scripture, moral, and they would have had regard and respect in the community. We, we know that from the New Testament. And so in, in this parable, you, you've got to reset your assumptions and let the surprise and the shock of it happen. Jesus picks a Pharisee. And yes, he's spoken words against the Pharisees up to this point, but all we think of Pharisees as if reading our Bible is negative. And yet the contrast with the tax collector, who if anything we don't think too poorly of, we miss. So as we look into the explanation, Jesus introduces this parable, introducing us to two very different men. And I really don't think they could have been further apart. So on the one hand, you have the moral, religious, externally righteous Pharisee, um, highly regarded in the community, fastidious, gave attention to the Torah, likely memorized large chunks of it. And here's the tax collector. Now, the tax collectors were absolutely despised. We get this from the repeated refrain in Luke's gospel of the Pharisees. This man ekes with sinners and tax collectors. Sinner wasn't a bad enough category to cover tax collector. You needed to add it in separately. You, you got to understand, Rome was viewed as, by Israel, a foreign, pagan, polytheistic, immoral oppressor. And these people had sold out, turned on their allegiance to their countrymen, bought a tax franchise, and were viewed as, in most instances, ripping off, oppressing, and cheating their countrymen. The contrast couldn't be greater. Could not be greater. This would be like someone who, during the Blitzkrieg, in occupied Poland, signed up and began working for the Nazis. Something similar to that in the way they are viewed. These two men go up to the temple to pray. Up because the temple is on a hill. And they go up and they pray. And Jesus gives us an insight into their prayer. And from their prayer and from their prayer alone, we're to understand how this works. Why the two fates differ and what is fundamentally different about them. We're introduced to two very different men, polar extremes, Let's take a look now at the Pharisee's prayer. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So it starts out with his stance. We get the stance of both men in the contrast. The Pharisee standing by himself, which fits given the meaning of the word Pharisee. The sect of the Pharisees, the Aramaic background, means the separated ones. 
And so it makes sense. This guy is standing by himself. He's not standing with the rest, the contaminated group. He's standing by himself. And he stands at the temple. He goes to the temple and he, he prays to God. And, and the key that Luke directs us to, and we're given how to interpret and understand him, is given up in verse 9. He is one who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This is a man who trusts in himself that he is righteous. And I think oftentimes there's some misunderstanding of what's going on here. John Piper, I found very helpful with this, listening to a message this week. Oftentimes we can assume this man is a legalist. And by a legalist, I mean someone who works, does things to earn God's favor. I, I don't think the text would lead us there. Only if you import that view of a Pharisee into this parable, do you get that? No, we're told what the problem is. This is a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Here's somebody trusting in himself that he is righteous. He's confident, in fact, that he is righteous. And his righteousness is composed of two parts. First, he believed his righteousness was moral. He believed his righteousness was moral. And he, he, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men or the rest of men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Now, those are all good things. There, there's, it's good. I'm glad that this man didn't cheat on his wife. I'm glad this man didn't um, extort and cheat others. But he believed his righteousness was moral. And he believed his righteousness was religious or ceremonial. That's the second category. So he starts out with the moral category. Secondly, he fasts twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Now here, he's going well above and beyond the requirements of the law. The Old Testament law only had one required fast. It's given in Leviticus 16, and it's for the Day of Atonement. Other than that, there are no required fasts. But we learned when we studied through Zechariah that as the people of Israel were in captivity, they began through mourning over the fate of Israel to add further fasts. Remember, they went and they sent a messenger to Zechariah, should we continue fasting in the second, third month? Well, this man is now fasting a hundred times more than the law requires. Twice a week, which you double that up, you get to 104. The law requires one fast a year. And again, if this was done rightly, good for him. It's a mark of his zeal, a mark of his self-discipline, a mark of his seriousness. And he tithes not just of the things that the law required him to tithe, but of all things. In fact, listen to Philip Riken as he speaks of this man. In short, this Pharisee kept the whole law of God, or thought he did at any rate. Today he'd be a renowned theologian, perhaps a respected elder in a church or a beloved pastor. Furthermore, the Pharisee went well beyond the law in his devotional practice. The law stipulated only one fast year on the Day of Atonement. This man did so a hundred times more. He made a point of tithing all his income, setting aside one-tenth of everything he received. This, too, was more than the law requires. By tithing everything, the Pharisee proved himself to be an exceptionally devout man. These are all fine things, but please don't think the point of this parable is to say, oh, being faithful to your wife, that's, that's bad. Being, being spiritually disciplined and giving and you know, and, and fasting, that's bad. No, that's not the point. The point is, this is a parable for those who trusted in themselves that they are righteous. That's the point. This man, despite all these good things, is trusting himself 
that he is righteous. Now, the next point is even more shocking. When I say he's not a legalist, it's because of this. He believed his righteousness was a gift of God. He doesn't thank himself. He thanks God. Now, take that seriously. He's, he's believing himself to be in a righteous state. He keeps the law. He both morally does what is right and religiously does what is right, but he credits that to God. He does not say, I've worked and I did this. He says, God, I thank you. Now, make no mistake, there's five eyes in this paragraph. There's a lot of focus on himself, I, I, I. But he's crediting God. He's crediting the fact that he is righteous as God's work, God's gift. God is the one who gets the thanks. Don't miss that. He believed his righteousness was a gift of God. And consequently, that's why he held the other man in contempt. You see, what we're going to see, the difference here is when you draw before God, whose righteousness do you come clothed in? This man believed he had a righteousness that was a gift of God, but it was his own. He performed it. He accomplished it all by God's grace, all by God's help. But it's his righteousness. And consequently, the man over there, that nasty tax collector who so clearly is not righteous, he would separate from contrasts himself with, and he makes his prayer to God. He believed and trusted in his own righteousness. And to really understand this, we need to look at the contrast of the tax collector's prayer. And again, this is a man despised in his community. This is someone who um, is, is the lowest of the low And he understands this, he gets this. In contrast to the Pharisee who stands by himself, but prominently, he's far off. He's far off. And whereas the Pharisee is confident in the righteousness that he possesses, this man is not confident at all. He's, in fact, very confident that he's unrighteous. Tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, Be God, God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. So notice his his humility and his contrition. He stands far off. He won't even raise his eyes to heaven. It's a sign of shame. Ezra 9.6, Ezra praying, says this, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. Oh my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And he beats his breast as an act of contrition. This is a way of showing remorse, brokenness, abasement. He draws near the temple, but he does so recognizing his unworthiness, not daring to lift his eyes to heaven, publicly demonstrating his his brokenness. And he pleads, here's your blank, for atonement from God. He pleads for atonement from God. Now, I know the ESV simply translate the phrase here, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that that could be a valid translation of the term, but it's actually a much more precise term. In Greek, um, it's a verb only used twice in the New Testament, here and in Hebrews 2, and I think that'll help clarify it. But, But literally, it's the word we get propitiation from. Remember we talked about the mercy seat, the halosmos? That is what he's saying here. 
So the picture is he's drawing near the temple where the mercy seat is, where the sacrifices are done, and he's crying out, be merciful to me, but it's that particular type of mercy that comes from the mercy seat. Oh, let me read again from Philip Ryken. This is what the tax collector was praying for when he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He was asking God to make atonement for his sin. There the man was, praying in the temple where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. To put it more precisely, he begged for God to be mercy seated to him. And, and here, I think, is where we get the contrast of what we're looking at. So remember, this is a parable told to those who trusted in themselves that they are righteous. And so, on the one hand, we have a man who trusts that he himself is righteous because he doesn't cheat on his wife, because he doesn't rob other people, because he obeys the law. Now, that's all God's doing. He's not going to take credit for it. Maybe a little pride in it, but it's, it's God's doing, not his own. In contrast, here's a man saying, I need your righteousness. I need a sacrifice. I need atonement. I need what's going on in this temple to be applied to me. That's the contrast. Here, in fact, we get the sinner's prayer. You've heard of that before, but here it is. And notice the difference. In, in English, the verb, the verb, the pronoun I is used when it's related as the subject of the verb. And so the man's prayer, as much as he's giving God glory or he's praising or acknowledging God's work in his righteousness, he's the subject of the verbs. I am not like other men. I thank you. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. We use me, it's the object pronoun, when you're the subject, when you're the object of the verb. And that's the, the, the sinner here, the tax collector. Lord, I need you to do something for me. He's coming to get. I need grace and mercy from your mercy seat. The order of the publican's prayer is significant because it matches the Old Testament pattern for sacrifice. God be merciful to me, the sinner, or more literally, God be propitious to me, the sinner. First comes God, who is perfect in holiness. Last comes the sinner, who deserves to die. But in between them comes the blood of the expiating sacrifice that takes away the sinner's guilt and turns away the wrath of God. So, so that's the difference. One coming trusting in his own righteousness, which God did, which God worked, but it's his own, it's his own doing. The other, I need something from you. I need your righteousness. Which then gets us to the application. The application. And here, and we're so used to the story, the outcome that Jesus gives doesn't shock us the way it ought to. Jesus tells us that despite the fact that the Pharisee is moral and he's fastidiously religious, and despite the fact that he credits that with God, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector went home justified. And we are told, we're not left to wonder, we're told explicitly, and not the Pharisee. So this is a parable about justification, which is a term that Paul generally uses more frequently, especially in Romans. But here is a passage where Jesus speaks not simply of forgiveness, but of atonement and justification, which is the, the condition of being declared righteous by God. And this tax collector, goes home in the state of being declared righteous 
by God. It's amazing. It's shocking. It's similar to Paul's language in Romans 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 5.9, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, and much more will we be saved. This is a parable about justification, about salvation, about how can I be declared just by God? Now, this man's declaring himself just. The Pharisee is speaking of his own justice, his own righteousness. He grants that it's God's gift, but he's justifying himself. A tax collector cries out, he needs atonement, he needs mercy, and God declares him just. And then Jesus gives us the unbreakable theological principle behind all of this. He's already said this earlier in Luke 14, 11, word for word. Why is this shocking state of affairs so? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so what's, what's this mean for us? I think this is profound and important. What it means is, no matter how much growth God is doing in your life, no matter how much fruit of the Spirit you are bearing, and you, you need to, that is important, is good, you dare never trust in it. There's a sense in which we could pray something like the, the Pharisee's prayer. I could thank God. God, I am thankful that I have not been unfaithful to my wife. I won't take credit for that. I'll credit that to God. God, I'm thankful that I don't rob people. There by the grace of God go I. But what I dare not ever do is trust in it as my standing to approach God. When I draw near to God, I don't draw near because I've had a good week. Lord, I've been faithful this week and I shared the gospel twice and I've been a loving father and a dutiful husband. And, and so now here I am, God. And it's all the work of you. No, if, if I come, if you come, if we draw near to God's throne, it is only through the sacrifice that's offered. Now, this side of the cross, that's not clear, but Luke has this entire section of his gospel under the shadow of the cross. Because remember, starting in chapter 9, Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Turn, turn back to 9. Turn back to 9. Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there he meets with Moses and Elijah, verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, or literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Remember, the exodus occurred where God delivered his people from slavery as they escaped judgment by the blood of the Lamb that was slain. And then, as he comes down from the mountain, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And again, verse 53, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And so this entire section from 951 all the way till we get to Jerusalem is the the travel narrative, and the reader is meant to understand all of this taking place with the shadow of the cross looming over the text. And we keep reminded, verse 57 in chapter 9, as they were going along the road, going along where? To Jerusalem. And again and again in 1038, now as they went on their way, where? To Jerusalem. 
And Luke's reminding us that we've got a destination in view. This isn't Jesus' Galilean ministry or moved around. We've got a goal. And it's going to end with the Son of Man being handed over and delivered over to sinful men and crucified. So Jesus pictures these two prayers taking place at the temple, at the place where sacrifice was made under the law. And inside the temple, maybe even watching or hearing the, the, the animals being slaughtered, this man cries out, oh God, be propitious to me. May that atonement apply to me. And now we know that the Lamb of God has been slain on our behalf, this side of the cross, right? So what does this look like for us? What it means is we, we must never move past drawing near to God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No matter how faithful you've been, and praise God for that. No matter how moral you've been, and praise God for that, and give him the credit for that. Don't you ever dare trust in that as the reason you stand before God or fall before God. That, that I think, is what the warning is here. I think that's the focus. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, I get encouraged when I look at my fruit in my life, when I see growth and change, when I look and see that I'm not the man today that I was 10 years ago. I get encouraged, and it shows and confirms that God is at work. It validates my profession of faith. And in some senses, it's necessary. We need to grow in grace to evidence that we are his sons. But it is never, never, never the ground that I trust in. At least it ought never be the ground that I trust in. Because God will humble all who exalt themselves. God will humble all who exalt themselves. Even if you credit it to God, if you begin to trust in your own righteousness and the own works you're doing, you will become proud. You're, you're standing, it's relating to what you have done. Even if you credit that God has done it through you. By the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says. And as you begin to justify yourself and speak of your good deeds, you will begin to hold others in contempt. You know, I, I work with people a lot, and that's a common thing. Hearing someone tell me how righteous they are and then speak with contempt of the other, it's the way it always happens in conflict because you're always the good guy, they're always the bad guy. No one understands me, but I understand them. And we justify ourselves and we hold others in contempt. And Jesus, by speaking to some, I think in both groups, is indicating this is a danger for the Pharisees, but it's also a danger for his disciples. We can begin to hold others in contempt. They just tried harder. They just worked a little more. Maybe they too could live the life that I'm living. God will humble all who exalt themselves. You think of the, uh, the lawyer who is testing Jesus. Um, Luke 10, 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And we're hardwired to do this. We're hardwired. The second you and I think we've got any cred whatsoever with God, any good deed, we're, we're hoarding our chips, keeping count and score and record, as if somehow we're buying something from God. Now, good deeds are necessary. If, if the Spirit of God is in you, your life will change. And fruit on a tree proves it's alive 
But, but turn back to Luke 7, verse 10. I think this is the point why I think this understanding of the parable is correct. Actually, go back to 17.7. Luke 17, 7, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. If God sanctifies you to the point where you are nearly approaching doing all that God has commanded you, and if you fully give him the credit for that, do you then have a righteousness of your own you can trust in? No, you're an unworthy servant. You've only done your duty. That's what Jesus says here. Now, we are servants. We need to do our duty. That's necessary. But we aren't buying Credit with God, and that never becomes the foundation which we draw near in prayer before him. You see, God will humble those who exalt themselves, but God will exalt all who humble themselves. And we've seen this again and again in Luke's gospel. In fact, remember the the story of the, um, oh dear, the Roman centurion. There it is who had the sick servant, and he sent the first delegation, and they were Jews, and they meant well, but what did they tell Jesus in 7, 4? He is worthy. You ought to come do this, because he loves our country, and he's built our synagogue, and, and he respects our people. He, he's got chips. He's got a righteousness that's his own, and he's worthy. You ought to go and do this good thing for him. And as Jesus draws nearer and he learns that Jesus is coming, he he sends people who actually speak in the first person for him. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. And Jesus marvels at his faith. Jesus marvels at his faith. When you and I are faithful, God doesn't owe us anything. When you've had a good day, you have no more right to draw near God's throne of grace than on your worst day. What matters is the heart that we draw near with. This man is justified because he recognizes and is broken over his sin. He's beating his breast. He's humble. And he knows that what he needs is atoning grace and mercy from the mercy seat. I know, God, that what I need is your forgiveness. I need, I need that the forgiveness that comes, and in his case, through the sacrifices that are offered, would you direct that to me? Could I share in that? And this side of the cross, it sounds something like, oh, Lord God, would you credit me with Christ's righteousness who died on my behalf? And so there's great and wonderful news here. I've said before that no one is too sinful to be saved. No one is too weak to be saved. There are far too many people who are too righteous, too good, and too wise. You could be the worst possible, imaginable person, a traitor to your nation, an exploiter of your countrymen. If you could humble yourself, if you could cry out to God, if you could seek 
his mercy and forgiveness through the finished final sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you too can be justified. That's the amazing good news of this passage. Turn to Psalm 51. We're going to close here. As I speak about the relationship between these faith and good works, it's not as though good works and obedience are not important. Jesus has already in Luke's gospel stressed the importance. You must pick up your cross. You must be willing to deny yourself. You must love him above all things. But we need to never confuse the root or the ground of our salvation and our justification with its fruit. In Psalm 51, if you look at the psalm title, David, the psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David had betrayed a loyal soldier. This man was fighting for David and for Israel, and his king betrayed him, and he was assassinated, killed in battle, but intentionally so. And then David stole his wife, and and it went unconfessed and undealt with for at least nine months because the child was born, and Nathan comes and rebukes him. And out of David's mouth comes repentance. And out of the prophet says, you're not going to die. The Lord has taken away your iniquity. And then David writes this psalm. And I just want to pick up in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What David's getting here is that the fundamental thing that God wants from us, if we're to be acceptable in the sight, is to come with a broken spirit and contrite heart, looking to his mercy. And this side of the cross, we understand that that mercy comes through his son, Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, that if we will trust in, turn to him, repentance and faith, we will be forgiven. But if we just stopped here in Psalm 51, we might think that what David's saying is all of that law and all the things that God required of Israel, that's unimportant. Forget about that. You just need to have the right heart. But look as he goes on. He recognizes it's not foundational. It's not the ground. David's saying, I've messed up. I've killed a man. I've stolen his wife. What I need is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings, the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What David's saying, what he understands is, Lord God, if I can get my heart right and you can forgive me, then on that foundation of forgiveness, grace, repentance, then I'm going to go do the things the law prescribes. But David doesn't think, okay, I messed up. I need to go do stuff for God. I need to get a righteousness so I can make up for this and stand before He gets it. This tax collector gets it. And Jesus is warning the Pharisees, but he's also warning his disciples. There's a danger, subtly over time, that as you grow, you and I grow, we can begin to shift our confidence from Christ, his righteousness, to the ministry you're involved in, to the work you're doing, to the influence you're having, to the way your family is turning out. And they're all good things. And you can Give the credit to God just like this Pharisee. But if you begin trusting in them, 
God is not honored in that. You begin trusting in them. What you're not trusting in is Christ. Now I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we get ready to sing our last song. I just want to close in a word of prayer. We need to be careful that we don't ever drift from our confidence in Christ, that we don't ever shift what we are trusting in. Do not become those who trust in ourselves that we are righteous, but rather trust in God's atoning sacrifice. Lord God, we pray that you would guard every one of us, guard our hearts that are prone to wander, that you would convince us, settle the matter, that it is only through the death of your son. It is only through his righteousness. It is only through the sacrifice that he has given by which we stand. That our own works matter nothing in that regard. And that the foulest sinner may draw near with the proper sacrifices of God, which are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Lord, you will never, never turn away one who comes in such a way. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing.